I'm going to begin by reading our sermon text this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 6. It says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations, and all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts, or is it not from the Lord of hosts, that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we lift up our hearts to you this morning. We come to offer a sacrifice of praise. We come as living sacrifices on the altar. We ask that you accept our hearts to you in Christ's blood, covered, cleansed, forgiven. And we pray this morning that as we hear your word, that it would convict us, guide us, shape us, teach us, comfort us, correct us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, um, and I was going to say too, since it's such a small setting, feel free to get, your, get all your amens and your yes sir and oh yeah, keep going, all that stuff. Because I think, exactly, preach, you know, I just think uh, otherwise we're not going to make it, you know. So... Um, So if you've been uh, there for the last few sermons, we've been preaching through Habakkuk, um, Minor Prophet in the Old Testament, um, and at the beginning the book is called an oracle, or a burden is another way to translate it, and so um, we've got this burden of Habakkuk, and um, he's been repeatedly calling out to the Lord, saying, I'm witnessing all this violence, I'm witnessing all this destruction, all this injustice around me, it's never punished. Lord, how long? That's kind of how the book starts, is this him just pouring his heart out to the Lord and even getting to the point where he's starting to ask, God, are you even seeing this? God, do you care? Are you going to do anything about this? Um, And so 
uh, God says, yes, Habakkuk, I've heard your prayers and I'm seeing it and I'm seeing even more than you're seeing. Trust me, I will put an end to the wickedness of those Israelite rulers. I will put an end to it by sending the Chaldeans, right? And so this is not the response that Habakkuk was hoping for. As we've discussed before, the Chaldeans or Babylonians were far more wicked than the Israelites were at that time um, that the prophet was complaining about. They were, they were worse off. And so the first thing that God wanted Habakkuk to hear that we talked about in the first sermon was, I can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. That was week one, was I can use an unrighteous nation and their unrighteous desires to accomplish my holy purposes and even to answer your righteous prayers. I can do that. That was the first thing that God knew that Habakkuk needed to hear. The second thing that God knew that Habakkuk needed to hear and his people needed to hear was that even when there is unrighteousness all around you and injustice all around you and it seems like the walls are closing in, the righteous will live by faith. That was the second week. That was Aaron preached that. And then the third thing that God knows that Habakkuk needs to hear and that his people, we need to hear, brings us to our sermon today. And it's this. God will judge the wicked. He will. Um, and God will judge the wicked. And this, this should be a comfort and a warning. Um, God will bring devastating justice on the wicked. This should be a comfort and a warning. So look at verse 6. It says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and then we'll look at what he's going to say. But uh, So we, we start here with these taunts and scoffing and riddles. And so we have to ask, it says, shall not all these take up their taunt? Well, who, who is these? Who is their taunt? Who, is, who are we talking about? And it says they're taunting and scoffing and, and proposing these dark riddles at him. Well, we, we got to know the context. What are we talking about? And so if you were uh, with us, you know, two weeks ago when Aaron preached the first half of chapter two, we know that the, the these that it's talking about are all the nations that the Chaldeans are conquering and, and victimizing, right? So these, these very same people that the Chaldeans are, are consuming or like fish in a net or dragging all to themselves, these very same people are the ones who are going to be taking up a taunt and scoffing against him and the him there again is referring to the Chaldeans. It's almost like a personified person, or it could be in reference to their king. But what's interesting here is is they're taking up taunts and scoffing and mocking against their captors, um, which usually is not how that goes. Usually the the captors are the ones taunting and scoffing. Um, and so before we get too far, we have to kind of dive in here for a second. Um, and, and I wanted to kind of walk through these three words because I think they're important. This word taunt could also be translated like proverb or byword. Um, I recently told Sadie the story of the boy who cried wolf. That's like a modern day proverb for us. or that's a modern day byword for us. And so if someone were to falsely be, you know, trying to get attention, crying for help, either because it's funny or just because they wanted attention, you might scold them, you know, especially if it's a child. You might say, hey, you don't want to be the boy who cried wolf, Right. And so uh, Habakkuk is saying that the Chaldeans aren't just going to fall apart. Their nation is not just going to fall, but it will happen spectacularly. And that they will be known for getting taken down. Known for losing in battle. Known for all these woes that we're going to walk through today that will befall them. And they will become a byword. They will become a proverb. It'll be like, well, you don't want to be a Chaldean. Like, that's, that's kind of how, how they're scoffing. They're, they're taunting. The scoffing here could be translated mocking. You know, I think about, like, Little League Baseball when one team is just 
way more dominant than the other. They just run up the score. That's the idea. They're mocking, they're scoffing, they're rubbing your nose in it. And then this idea of riddles could be translated as dark sayings. Um, that's actually uh, uh, what it, uh, what it uh, is like truly to be translated as, is dark sayings. And I was thinking about like, like in you know, movies or TV shows when like a gang or a mafia is depicted and it's like they go to your store and they're like, it's a nice store you got here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. It's like that's a dark saying. It's like a riddle that's very easy to figure out, like a threat. And so the idea here is the taunters are saying to the Chaldeans, boy, that's a real nice empire you've got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it, you know? Um, and so that's this idea. And, and, but what's interesting is, again, these are the, the captives. These are the victims. God is saying they're going to rise up and they're going to taunt and they're going to scoff and mock and they're going to have these dark sayings and riddles for you. And um, this only makes sense if you know the God of Scripture, This only makes sense if you know the God of the cross. Um, The very same act, right, that Satan used to to crush, uh, or I'm sorry, to to wound Christ's heel, that very same heel comes down and crushes Satan's head, right? The cross was Satan's victory over Christ, but it certainly wasn't a victory. And so in that same way, we see here that the joy and the victory of the Chaldeans will be cut short and it will not go well for them, right? Right. And it's similar, the Apostle Paul says that when we endure for Christ's sake, danger and famine and sword, we are more than conquerors. And again, you wouldn't think that danger and famine and having your head put under a sword is conquering. But again, from the Christian perspective, we know that you're more than a conqueror. These are shadows of the glory of the cross, that Christ, in his defeat, was actually obtaining victory. And so... Before we begin these five woes, that's what we have here today, is Habakkuk has five woes upon the Chaldeans. Um, I do want to just give a brief understanding of what a woe is, so that we have some handles as we move forward in the, in the text. A woe, if you're not familiar, is a warning or a proclamation of judgment. It is a declaration, essentially, of bitter sorrow, distress, trouble is coming your way. Um, and to give you an idea, a couple of famous passages in scripture, you may have heard the idea of woe used before would be Isaiah 6. Right? Isaiah sees a pre-incarnate Christ in all his glory sitting on the throne. And he says, when he sees all the holiness of God, he says, woe is me. So he actually pronounces woe, bitter distress and sorrow on himself. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah is pronouncing woe on himself. We see Luke 10, similarly, Jesus pronounces woe to unrepentant cities. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. So he's saying, woe, bitter judgment, bitter distress is coming your way. Um, And then the last one I'll reference here is, (laughs) <laughs> it's okay. Is uh, Matthew Matthew twenty three, uh, Matthew twenty three? Right before Jesus pronounces judgment on the city of Jerusalem, uh, Matthew twenty three is a series of seven woes that Jesus gives to the scribes and Pharisees, which also includes one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This is in my notes, but one of my favorite things in the Bible is when um, the lawyers pop up and they're like, "Hey, when you say all that mean stuff about the Pharisees, you're offending us too." And he's like, "Then woe to the lawyers too." I mean, um, so Jesus is not afraid of stepping on toes. And so, essentially, um, we, we have these, these woes, right? Um, and, uh, and so, five woes, and all of them are going to have two parts as we go through these five 
woes in Habakkuk 2. All of them have two parts. The first one is like a declaration of here's what you did wrong. The second is here's the punishment you're going to see coming. Okay, so they all have two parts, the crime and the punishment. Okay, so the first one, if you look at verses 6 through 8, first one is, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. That's the, that's the summary of, of the pronouncement of what they did wrong. First woe is what you've done wrong uh, is that you've heaped up what is not your own and you've loaded yourself with pledges. And so the first of the five woes that God pronounces on the Chaldeans is that they heap up what is not their own and load themselves with pledges. They are breakers of the eighth commandment. That's the summary of it. You know, God says you shall not steal, and they are guilty of heaping up what does not belong to them. And the taunters say that they're loading themselves up with pledges. We'll come back to that in a second. Verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those uh, awake who will make you tremble, that then you will be spoiled for them. And so the judgment here is this idea of sowing and reaping. You Chaldeans have played the loan shark. You have played... The, the debt lender, you've played the, the predatory, predatory loan guy, all these nations around you, that, that's going to come back at you, sowing and reaping, right? You're gonna, that's the form of wickedness that they're going to take on you. And so we actually, we learn about this a little bit from Exodus 22, uh, verses 26 and 27. It says, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, that's this idea of pledges that they were taking up. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. And then in verse 27, it says, For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In those days, um, your, your cloak or your coat was kind of all you had in a lot of ways. You would sleep with it. It would be your, your blanket at night. And the idea here is that if someone was so poor that they needed a loan, they, they needed money to live, and the only thing they could give you as collateral was their blanket, their winter coat, kind of their only covering in life. Um, God says that it is a righteous and good thing that they would get that back at the end of each day. Even though that's, that's kind of your only collateral, that's the only way you know they're going to pay you back, it's still, um, he says it's a righteous and good thing that you'd still give that back to them so that they wouldn't freeze at night. And so the Chaldeans were these predatory lenders. They were heaping up what was not their own through the form of these pledges. And what it seems like is they were keeping essentially your winter coat in February. Right? Oh, you need to eat this week? Fine, I want your winter coat and your boots. Like, that, that's kind of the idea, is, uh, you know, they're, they're keeping your car as collateral when you have a delivery job, right? <laughs> that's, this, this was their, their way of doing this. And so, essentially, it was making it either impossible to live or impossible to pay back what you owed. And so they were heaping up uh, wealth this way. And so that's what the Chaldeans wanted, and God's like, well, you're going to get it. <laughs> um, he's saying this wrongdoing, this woe will come upon you. And then verse 8 um, he says, because you've plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples will plunder you. So again, sowing and reaping. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So continuing this idea of sowing and reaping, the first woe continues by saying that because you've plundered, you will be plundered. And because you're violent and shed someone's blood, your blood will be shed. This is reminiscent of Genesis 9-6 that says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man will his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So the first woe is you like to take and take and take. Well, everything's going to be taken from you. That's the crime. That's the punishment. Second woe, verses 9 through 11. It says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. So this is a bit of a continuation of the first woe, right? You see, woe to him who gets evil gain. You might say, well, that sounds kind of like the first one. 
but it says they get evil gain to do something for a purpose here. And so what he's condemning them for is he condemned them for getting evil gain in an evil way. And now he's condemning them and pronouncing woe because of the purpose they wanted the evil gain. And it's the idea that they would trust in their ill-gotten gain as their safety to keep them safe. And so that's kind of what distinguishes the, the first one from this one is that they're heaping up what's not theirs here in this second woe. Um, be, and they're getting all this dishonest gain there is so that they can put their trust and their hope in evil gain as their safety, as their security. And what's ironic here is because of this greedy gain, they will face destruction. It was literally the opposite of safety. It's putting them in danger of God's judgment. And so the, the Chaldeans earlier in, in Habakkuk were previously described as these swooping predatory eagles. Um, that swoop down and dive down upon their prey. And here the analogy continues with this eagle idea that they're, uh, the language of having their nest on high and setting it out of harm's reach is the idea that a bird, if it could build its nest high enough to a high enough spot, then no predator could swoop down on them. Um, and so uh, you'd be safe from the reach of harm. That was the idea, or that uh, another animal couldn't climb up to get you. And so their hope was if I build kind of a mountain of of dishonest wealth and gain, this ill-gotten money will keep me high enough that no predator could sneak up on me. They trusted their riches to keep them safe. And I guess, right, that the Chaldeans had never heard Proverbs 16, which says, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Or Psalm 37, better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of the many wicked. So we all know, right, that it's better to have a clean conscience and enjoy your lot in life rather than cut corners and lie and gain something dishonestly because you're never able to fully enjoy it. And I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever thought, like, I got away with it, <laughs> you know, I, whether it's a piece of candy as a kid or whatever, but it's like when you feel like you're getting away with it, all of a sudden it, it's not so sweet and, and you're not really getting away with it and you're kind of looking over your shoulder. You can't really enjoy it because of the guilt. Um, and so all of a sudden this thing that you were planning to enjoy through dishonest gain now sits like ashes in your mouth. And so... Um, verse 10, it says, you've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You've forfeited your life. And so here, the, the taunt here, which, you know, comes from the, the ones who are victimized, but really ultimately comes from the Lord. This is prophecy. It says, you have devised shame for your house by doing this. And so essentially, is he's saying, you're planning your own fall by getting all this ill-gotten gain, by putting your trust in it. You're essentially, you're writing up the blueprints for how you're going to kill your nation. That's how this works is a nation built on ill-gotten wealth that puts its trust and its hope in, in riches rather than in God, you're writing your own blueprints for how I'm going to take you down. And so the idea of here of your house um, in verses 9 and 10 both say uh, this was essentially concerning the Babylonians' household or their empire and specifically the king and his lineage. That's the hymn that keeps getting brought up. And so he says, you've devised shame for your house. Um, and so the, I had a, a quote here from a commentary by O. Palmer Rob, Robertson. He says, the house about which the Chaldean is concerned refers primarily to his dynasty. Although it may apply to the commoner's family line as well, he wishes to place his descendants above the reach of all enemies, real or imagined. He trusts that somehow accumulated wealth will assure that they will be unassailable. 
the vice of covetousness naturally connects with a person's concern for those of his household, his posterity. And as a bird achieves security for his young by building a nest on the peak of a rocky crag, so the covetous person, possibly the king of Babylon, strives by illegal as well as, as, well as legal means to establish his dynasty. And I mean, how many times in history has the biggest, richest, richest nation or king or person fallen by some you know, weird providence of God? And so this idea that you can just build enough wealth and you'll be safe is obviously foolishness. And so the Chaldeans wanted something they could not have. They wanted a kingdom that would not end. They wanted a man on the throne forever. And so the problem is those positions were already filled. <laughs> there already was a kingdom that would not end. There was already a promise of one who would sit on the throne forever. And every other king will die but Christ, and every other empire will fall but the kingdom of heaven. Christ will sit on his throne forever. And as Isaiah 9, 7, the Christmas verse that we all quote says, should should give us great humility about our own nation. It says, of the increase of his government, Christ's government, and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so the only nation that's guaranteed to continue on forever and to grow forever is Christ's, his his kingdom, his nation. And then verse 11 says, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork. Um, I want you to just, uh, I guess, put a pin in this idea. I'll talk about this first, but we'll come back to this idea of stones and wood crying out. Keep that in mind. But this language here, of shame and forfeiting your life and stones crying out um, is, is picked up again in the letter of James in the New Testament. Lord's brother, James, wrote about unrighteous rich people and pronounced some woes on them himself. So in James 5, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. And this isn't just rich people in general, but unrighteous rich people. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So again, people trusting in their riches to keep them safe. But behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. So James is teaching, like Habakkuk, that those who gain wealth unrighteously, specifically in James's case, by holding it back from people that are owed, by taking advantage of others, they will not get away with it. That's not how God's world works. God's world works in such a way that withholding wages, withholding something you owe someone doesn't work out for you. You can't gain that way. God is comforting his people here, both in the Old Testament Habakkuk, New Testament James, by saying that the wicked will weep and will howl and all their nice clothes will rot and all their gold and silver will corrode. And my favorite part in James 5, 4 here is it says that the waves of the laborers that you defrauded are crying out against you. It doesn't say that the laborers are crying out. He also says that later, but he says the wages are crying out. He says that the money that you owe them is crying out against you. Just like the blood of righteous Abel cried out to the Lord against Cain. And church, the Lord is warning us here that your bank account will not be silent, right? Your own wealth, your own pocketbook, your own wallet cries out against you if there's something that is owed. Every transaction that you have made or every dollar that you kept back, the Lord knows, these passages are a woe 
that are meant to comfort those who are taking advantage of, being taken advantage of, right? But it's also a warning, right? The Lord sees, he knows, and justice will be served, but that's a warning for those doing the holding back. If you owe something to others, your bank account cries out against you. If you're holding back what you owe someone, then pay it. Do not heap up judgment on yourself. And now, if, if you are a Christian, truly you cannot heap up judgment, but you can heap up discipline, and the Lord will discipline those he loves. And this doesn't even have to be money either, right? Immediately, one of the things that came to mind as I was thinking about this was the Lord's Prayer. He says, I teach you to pray, forgive me as I forgive others. Right? The Lord taught us, pray and ask forgiveness of our sins, but he doesn't say you're supposed to pray, Lord, forgive me of all my sins, but don't forgive that other guy because he really hurt me. Right? No, the Lord teaches us to pray something radical. He says, forgive me as I forgive others. Can you believe that? Isn't that just like him? Right? <laughs> to really get at the heart of things. Like, don't say that. Um, he taught us to pray, essentially, forgive me, Lord, only so much as I'm forgiving others. And only as completely as I'm letting debts go of others, right? Those who've wronged me, to the degree that I let that go, that's how much forgiveness I want, Lord. That's what he's teaching us to pray. Forgive me that much. And ouch, (laughs) right? In, In this case, just like the wages cry out in James, and just like the stones in the woodwork cry out in Habakkuk, our withheld forgiveness cries out against us to the Lord. Paul goes so far as to say in Romans 13, 8, he says, Owe no one anything except love for each other, for the one who loves fulfilled the law. And Christians are not a withholding people. And so if you owe someone something, pay it back. Make it your aim to make that right as soon as possible, whether it be wages or forgiveness or something else. All right, woe number three, verses 12 through 14. He says, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And we already know that they've been building their empire with dirty money, right, with ill-gotten gain. And they've been putting their trust in their heaped up unrighteous gain. But now we learn that they're also building their empire on blood. And contrast this with, if you're familiar, Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. He says, Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so if you build your house, you build your empire, any venture, really, a family, a business, if you, if you don't build it God's way, it won't matter how nicely you built it. It will fall. Similarly, right, if you have the sharpest watchers in your army keeping watch over your house or your city or your nation or your business, it will not matter if you have blood guilt on your hands, right? You can have the best house, the best materials, you can have the best watchers on the wall, but if you've made the Lord your enemy, he's not watching over your city. And your watchers might as well be asleep. That's what he's saying. They might as well have gone to bed and not stayed up watching. No point in staying up and watching out for enemies. When you've made the Lord your enemy, you have signed your death warrant. And similarly, Jesus teaches us not to build a house on sand. He says, do not build your life on anything but the Lord. It's sinking sand, right? If it's a house, it will fall. If it's a city, it will be overrun. If it's a nation, well, dot, 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 right? Fill in the blanks, right? Um, It will fall. And so if you're not building your marriage God's way, right? Or you're not raising your children God's way, then you are are working on your marriage in vain. You are raising your children in vain. But I really love my kids, right? But if you're not raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, it's in vain, right? But my wife and I like all the same movies and hobbies, vain. If you will not submit your life to the Lord, your whole life 
is in vain. You might as well be the watcher who is asleep. If you're embarking on a business venture and you're cutting corners and withholding from your boss or a business partner, then no matter how early you wake up, no matter how late you stay working and burning the candle at both ends, you hit your sales number, it's all in vain. There's no point in saying, I built my house on sand, but I used really great materials. Right? God is saying, why bother? Why all the showmanship? Don't bother. Don't even build. No, instead we must repent of building our lives on anything but the word of God. Amen? Amen. Right. If anything else is our aim but the glory of God, or anything else is our guide but the word of God, then we are laboring and building in vain. We see the Chaldeans, sorry, the Chaldeans here specifically building their house, their empire on blood. They were founding their city with iniquity and sin. Verse 13 says, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? And this is, this is pretty cool. I think Habakkuk here is interjecting a question into the prophecy. So he's hearing woe after woe after woe. And what it sounds like is um, all these people that are taking over our nation, well, then they're just going to get taken over, right? And so he, he's saying, is, is it just everyone's lot in life for everything they work on to just burn up, right? He's saying that this fate is from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The question is something like this, Lord, if I'm understanding the vision correctly, Israel worked and worked and worked for a long time to build up this great nation, and it's all just going to get swept away and burned when the Chaldeans come to conquer us for their wickedness, right? And the Lord's like, right, go on. And, you know, and, and, and so Habakkuk's like, all right, well, so I just follow up question. When you say that these other nations will come, that they're going to conquer the Chaldeans then after they've worked and worked and built up a nation, right? Go on. You know, well, and this is all from your army. This is, you're going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be me doing it. Well, then what's the point? You know, what's the point of all this nation building? What's, you know, if you're, are you, are you a for us or against us, Lord? And, and I thought of this idea of, are you for us or are you for them? And I thought of Joshua 5, right? Joshua meets on the road a pre-incarnate Christ, and he's about to go to battle, and he says, I'll just read it. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and, and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? I love this. He says, no, <laughs> but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. No, I am not for you. And I'm not for your enemies. I am the Lord. I am for me. I'm for my glory. And so this, this question of, is all this nation building for naught? Is it all just going to end up getting burned up in hellfire? And I love the Lord's response, because you know, I'm kind of filling in the gaps for you. But what the Lord actually says is, is are we going to win, Lord? Are they going to win? Like, which nation will stand at the end? Right? The, the response, verse 14 the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is this a Chaldean world? Is this even a Jewish world? Is this an American world? No, it's God's world, right? The vision of the earth that the Lord has is not that just he will just tear down injustice here and there in an arbitrary fashion. God's view of history is that everything is heading for a time where all enemies of God will be put under his feet as a footstool. The vision holds that as wet as water is in the ocean, that to that degree, that's how full the earth will be of the knowledge of how glorious the Lord is. And so if Habakkuk is to take to heart uh, the fact that the Chaldeans can't last, um, 
even if they're conquered, even if they've conquered Israel for a time, God will take them down. And if, if these minor enemies and minor empires cannot stand, then church, we should absolutely take heart that the enemies of God will not stand. They will all fall. That Christ has claimed every corner of the earth for himself, including your life and our church and our homes, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the trajectory of history. So we can take heart when we see looming threats of continued government overreach in our nation, right? Or or the threats of other nations possibly coming to war with us, right? The father says to the son in Psalm 2, ask of me and I will give you all the nations as your inheritance. Or at a more personal level, right? Say you struggle with some sin that you just cannot seem to kill. We can say over these things that Christ will conquer every enemy, even the things that plague me. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will one day cover the earth in that area too. Right? Christ is in the process of taking dominion of the earth, and in that process he's taking dominion of me and you. And one day he will have all for which he died to purchase. And so to answer Habakkuk's question about endless nations rising and falling and rising and falling, is it all for nothing? We will all continuously just get wiped out, right, Lord? Are you for us or for our enemies? The Lord is for himself. The Lord is building a kingdom for himself. The knowledge of the Chaldeans will pass away. Most likely America will too at some point. But the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so the good news of the gospel is that the invitation is open to enter that kingdom. The one whose king will never fall. The one whose, I mean, I was going to say gates. We don't have gates. The enemy has gates and they won't prevail. Right? All at the cost of Christ's blood, you can enter into relationship with God. And more than that, you can have a right relationship, not just with him, but the gospel makes it possible that you would have a right relationship with others. Right? What's the answer to peace among nations? Right? It's that as Jesus becomes king of kings and lord of all the lords, we would see lions laying down with lambs. We would see swords being beaten into plowshares imperfectly this side of heaven. But if the, if the question is, like, how do nations stop warring against each other? Well, if they're all under Christ's rule, they got nothing to fight about. Right? Our only hope in life is the gospel, making us new and changing us into people who love God's ways and not our own. Woe number four, verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath, make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So I'm going to move through these last two woes quickly, but it says the Chaldeans were also guilty of drunken, naked debauchery. And I know we know nothing about that in our nation, but you can imagine, I'm just kidding, you can imagine what this would be like, right? This seems to be part of their conquest was to make their captives drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. And this could be either to shame them or just to lustfully look at them. Either way, it's sinful, it's debaucherous, and this is this is the declaration of wrong here, right? We always have the crime and the punishment. 16 holds the punishment. Verse 16 says, You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself. Show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. And so one day, the drunken nakedness will lose its glamour and it's fun, right? One day you will realize your shame and your embarrassment and your debauchery, and you will drink the cup of the Lord, and you will show your own nakedness. That's, that's the punishment. So again, it's this idea of sowing and reaping. Every, every punishment not only fits the crime, but it seems related to the crime. It's, it's always coming back on their own head. And so specifically in this context, if a, 
this is also interesting, if a Chaldean man were to be showing his nakedness, even if this is just figurative, what he's saying is it would be a shame to show your nakedness and be drunk, obviously. But it appears to be more than that. He says you'll show your uncircumcision. I think he's saying that you'll be stripped to nothing, you'll have nothing left, and when you show your uncircumcision, it's essentially when you're stripped naked, whether, again, figuratively or literally, you'll be shown that you're out of covenant with the Lord. When you fall, when your enemies strip you bare... We're going to know you weren't on the Lord's side. The cup of wrath will be your portion. And unlike the glory of the Lord, which fills the earth, the glory of the Chaldeans will have utter shame heaped on their glory. Uh, 17, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, cities and all that dwell in them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Essentially, the, uh, the Chaldeans were known for kind of harvesting all of Lebanon's wood in order to build their, their walls and all that, but we'll move on. Uh, the fifth woe, verses 18 and 19, says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, and to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. And so uh, I think this is kind of funny. Um, remember how I said put a pin in your mind about stones and wood crying out? Well, he's saying here, um, yeah, I can make the stones cry out. I can make the wood cry out in judgment on you. They're going to tell the whole story. Your bank account will, will lay you bare, right? That's the idea. He's saying here, but when you try and build an idol out of stone and wood, I mean, it's dead. It's lifeless. It's not going to say anything. So I love that reversal. Uh, but verse 18, he says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? And so the rhetorical question here is, of what prophet is an idol? The answer is none. He's saying you're putting your trust in a thing that you got to carry around with you. <laughs> it's like, where do you want to go, idol? I want to go over there. Oh, oh, let me pick you up. You know what I mean? It's, it's silliness, right? It's, it's this idea that, you know, what should I do next, magic eight ball? Oh, one of the five predetermined answers? This is crazy. You know what I mean? It's, right? And so he's saying, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. Right? You know, you're going you're gonna to talk to me? It's like, this, this is silly, right? Woe to him who thinks that it'll arise and teach. Just, you know, because it's overlaid with gold and silver, there's no breath in it at all. And so this, this final woe is against their idolatry. So we've talked about dishonest gain. This is the first woe. We've talked about uh, putting your trust in that gain. It's the second woe. The third one was building on bloodshed. The third one is drunken debauchery. But the fifth one here, I think, kind of summarizes all of it. It's that you're following a God that's not a God. Right? You're, you're looking to something that's not real. It's just wood and stone. It, it can't talk. It can't lead you. It can't save you. And so the final woe is against their idolatry. But what's interesting is this is the only one that doesn't list the punishment. All the other ones were, you did this, and this is going to happen to you. Right? You, you heaped up dishonest gain, you're going to be plundered. The pillagers will be plundered and, and, and all that. But what's the penalty here for idolatry? Putting your hope and trust into that which is worthless is that you reap worthlessness, right? Like Paul writes in Romans 1, the Lord hands them over to their idolatry. Idolatry is the punishment, right? What's the punishment for being dumb enough to think stones can talk? Well, then you get to walk around being the guy that thinks stones can talk. I mean, that's, that's the punishment here, right? And so we need the Lord. We need Christ as our priest because we need cleansing and forgiveness of sins, We need Christ as our king because we're weak and helpless and need the Lord to fight for us and guide us. We need Christ as our prophet because apart from him, we don't know our right hand from our left, right? We we need his word. We need his law. We need his gospel. But, But here, if you have an idol, if you have anything but Christ, you're trusting in something else to be your prophet and your priest and your king. 
right? If you put your trust in anything besides Christ uh, in those areas, then you have made an idol that cannot help you. And so I'll walk through this, right? When you abandon Christ and his work as priest, when you try and clean yourself up, rather than having yourself washed, your, your sins washed away by his blood, when you try and clean yourself up by hiding your sin or blame shifting or lying to deal with your sin, then you've just turned, some, you've turned to something besides Christ as your priest. You've made an idol that cannot help you. When you abandon Christ and his work as prophet for pop psychology or Enneagram or astrology or scientific experts or political experts or cable news as your source of truth to find your worldview, then you've made that into an idol and it cannot help you. When you abandon Christ and his work as king and you put your trust in your money, maybe, or your job, your salary to keep you safe or in a political ruler or a political party or your own eloquent speech to get yourself out of situations, you know, to be kept safe, then you've made an idol that cannot help you. And so my my final charge here is to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. If you've strayed from Christ in any area of your life, any corner of your heart that doesn't belong to him at this point, give it back. Give back what you owe. Return to him as your prophet, as your priest, as your king. Lay down your life before him. Consecrate yourself to him. And as we move to take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, experience in a fresh way his forgiveness, his grace, his cleansing. Don't try and clean yourselves up. And I'll end with this, verse 20. But the Lord, so in contrast to these idols, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And so unlike the idols that can do nothing and are made of things of the earth and are worthless, the Lord is in his holy temple and has all worth and all glory. And so I'll end with this quote from, again, that same commentary, O. Palmer Robertson, on this passage. He says, Shall the wicked continue to contradict the expressed laws of God without ever receiving some kind of final correction? then how could it be said that the glory of God fills the earth so long as such practices continue? No, only when the problem of the wicked is resolved will the glory of God fill the earth. Only when the righteous judgment rewards the wicked according to their deservings will true knowledge of God's holiness shine forth in all its splendor. The imagery of waters covering the sea for this universal spread of the knowledge of God's glory inspires optimism. To, to the farthest corners of the globe, the proclamation, the explanation of God's glory will be carried. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we lift up our hearts to you. We praise you that you are a God of justice, that you will bring justice on the wicked, that these woes to the Chaldeans, we can see that you are a God that takes sin seriously. And so we pray now, God, that if there is anything wicked in us that we would not wait for your discipline or that even if we're apart from Christ we wouldn't wait for your judgment but Lord that we would return to you now keep covenant with you submit our lives to you lay our lives down in humility trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding that we would give what is owed to those around us whether it be money or forgiveness or kindness or honor whatever it is that we would that we would live according to your ways, that we would owe nothing but love to those around us. And that if we've in any way at all abandoned Christ as prophet or priest or king, that we would give our hearts back to him this morning, that we would give our bodies back to him, that we would give our, our hands and our feet, our time at work, our time in the home, our time raising children, 
that when Christ saves someone, he saves the whole person, their whole life. And so we, we pray that the influence of Christ would spread over our lives and that we would see in, in small ways, but heading towards glory, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, that, that it will cover the earth as waters cover the sea, that that would be our comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.